Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. everyone and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today we will be talking to the national best-selling author, Sam Keen. Sam's work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Mental Floss, Slate, Psychology Today, and New Scientist. He has also been featured on NPR's Radio Lab, All Things Considered, and Fresh Air. Sam was also previously a guest on my show to talk about his book, The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons, which I highly recommend checking out. Uh, he is here today to talk about his book, The Violinist Thumb, and other lost tales of love, war, and genius as written by our genetic code. Sam, welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me back. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling me a little bit about yourself. Uh, a little bit about me. So I am a science writer based in Washington, D.C. Uh, my background is in physics, uh, but I also have an English literature major as well. And I guess I focus on kind of a mix of science history and science stories. So in each of my books, I have kind of one central theme, whether it's the periodic table, the human genome, the human brain. And then from there, I spin off a lot of different stories. And they all have kind of a basis in science, but they're really trying to explore a lot of different areas of human life. So I might talk about, you know, poisons or war or, you know, uh, jelly or art, something like that. So again, science is kind of the core, but I really try to make it uh, a little bit more lively and really story-based. Can you give, a, give us a, a brief overview of what The Violinist Thumb is about and kind of talk about what inspired you to write it? 
Yeah, so what inspired me to write it was I had just finished my first book, which is about the periodic table. And I really liked that idea of having kind of, again, one central idea, the human genome, but then spinning off a lot of different stories about things like, you know, art and computing and music and all these different areas. And I'd just been uh, writing a lot, I noticed, about the human genome. And it was a time when human uh, genetics was really kind of taking off, really getting to be widespread big deal. And I just thought it'd be kind of fun to get all of those stories I was working on into one place and expand them and kind of improve on them. And kind of the basic idea was that we'd been learning so much so quickly about uh, our past, basically, based on these incredible stories buried in our genome. And in a lot of cases, scientists had just assumed that this information was lost forever. You know, it was information about, say, the split between human beings and the last common ancestor we shared with chimpanzees, or uh, what happened to human beings, you know, uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years ago when there wasn't much archaeological evidence. But it turns out that our genomes have actually been uh, sort of copying these stories, carrying these stories around for millions of years in some cases. And we were finally able to, for the first time, really decode these stories. And the book kind of uh, looks at a lot of these stories and what we've been able to learn about ourselves based on uh, this new information, this new language that we're essentially able to decode for the first time. Let's start with the basics. Can you explain, you know, what is DNA? What are genes? How were they discovered? And how do living things pass down traits to their children? Yeah, so I'll start with DNA. That is a substance. It's a chemical. Uh, you know, I like to say it's a thing you can get stuck to your fingers. So it's a physical thing. And DNA is an unusual uh, chemical, unusual substance in that it's not quite as uniform as other substances. So if you're talking about water, H2O, carbon dioxide, CO2, every molecule of water is the same. They're all H2O. Every molecule of carbon dioxide is CO2. With DNA, it's mostly the same. There's kind of this basic structure that's the same, but there can be a few variations on it. In particular, there are four what are called bases, uh, four different substances. They abbreviate them A, C, T, and G. And by putting those substances in different order, you can encode information. So it's a lot like an alphabet, an alphabet with only four letters in it, but it's still a pretty powerful alphabet. If you think about your computer, your computer only has a one and a zero. So it has an even smaller alphabet, but your computer can do a lot of amazing things with just the one and the zero. Same with DNA. It has only four letters, but it can do a lot of amazing things with those. So basically, it's a way to encode information. And if you're talking about what a gene is, a gene is made of DNA. It's a stretch of DNA that does something specific. So sort of traditionally, uh, a gene made a protein. So a gene was DNA, got turned into RNA, then that got turned into a protein. So that was the general uh, classic definition of a gene. But nowadays, scientists are realizing that you know genes are a little bit more flexible. They don't always do that. But that's still basically a good sense of what a gene does, is it makes something or it does something 
something in particular inside of ourselves. And one thing I talk about in the book, I don't think a lot of people realize is, you know, we think about DNA and genes as almost synonymous, is not quite the same thing, but basically they're so intertwined in our head, we have a hard time keeping them apart. But for a long, long time, scientists did not know that genes were made of DNA. They thought that genes were made of other things, and genes were studied for a very long time before anyone knew much about DNA. So they are kind of separate ideas. And it's kind of a fascinating story uh, in the book about how they finally kind of merged those two ideas together. Together. So the scientists who subscribe to uh, Mendel's genetic theory, uh, which could you elaborate on that a bit, and those who followed Darwin's theory of natural selection were at serious odds with each other uh, to the point where many felt that the other theory had to be completely wiped out. Will you please talk about this and share the story of the men whose work ultimately bridged that gap between the two? Yeah, so that's another thing that uh, it's kind of been lost historically because nowadays we think about Mendel's theories and Darwin's theories as complementing each other quite well, kind of this beautiful marriage of two theories. But for a very long time, they were in fact in conflict with each other. So the basic idea or the basic problem, I should say, was that Darwin thought evolution happened very slowly, very, very gradually. And a lot of people didn't like that idea. They didn't challenge Darwin on the idea that evolution itself occurred, that change occurred. But they didn't buy Darwin's theory that evolution was a very slow, gradual process. So they didn't like the natural selection part of it. And then when Mendel's theories came along, people said, aha, this is a much better theory because in Mendel's studies especially, when he was working with pea plants, the pea plants would undergo kind of drastic changes. So they'd be either very short or very tall. They would have either red pea, or excuse me, uh, green peas or yellow peas. So there was no kind of in-between gradual traits in Mendel's theories. There were either these big jumps or these drastic changes. And sort of emotionally, people liked that idea better. It just sounded better to them. And it made more sense that evolution would take place with these large jumps like Mendel was proposing, rather with, than with Darwin's very slow, gradual theory. And it took people a long time to figure out how the two theories actually did complement each other and how to kind of fit them together. But for a very long time, there was this war where the Mendelists especially were determined to wipe Darwin out and kind of erase him from history. So one of the things I found to be absolutely crazy, and it has to be probably one of the craziest things I've read in my entire life, is the story in your book about uh, Tsutomu Yamaguchi. Will you please share this story for our listeners? Uh, yeah, this was one of those stories that I, I can't believe it's not more well-known because it is such an incredible story. So uh, Yamaguchi basically was working in Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, doing some work uh, for Mitsubishi, the company in Japan there. 
And he this was actually his last day on the job before he was going back to his hometown when he was walking to work, saw a plane flying overhead and saw this little tiny speck descending from the belly of the plane. And of course, it was the nuclear bomb that the U.S. dropped on Japan. So he saw it explode. He got thrown backwards, knocked out. He woke up feeling woozy and weak. His arm looked like it had a horrendous sunburn on it from the exposure to the radiation. Radiation. And as you can imagine, Hiroshima was in complete chaos then. There was a breakdown of any transportation, all civil structures, people struggling just to get water and food. So we kind of wandered around the rest of that day just trying to get on anything that would get him out of the city because all he wanted to do was get out of there and get back to his hometown. And he you know, finally got to the train, got on a train. It was delayed for a while, finally got moving, and he finally said, sat back and relaxed, thinking about getting to his wife and his child back to his hometown, which unfortunately happened to be Nagasaki. And he ended up showing up two days later, basically, right in time for the next nuclear bomb to go off. So he was kind of the most unlucky man of the 20th century in that he ended up seeing and being exposed to both of the nuclear bombs that got dropped on Japan. And so uh, but the, there is kind of a kicker on the story, too, in that despite being exposed to both of these atomic bombs, uh, Yamaguchi ended up surviving them by a very long way, incredibly long time after that. And I use this in the DNA book uh, not only because it's an incredible story, but what D or what, excuse me, what radiation damage does is it basically damages your DNA in different ways. That's how it ends up doing long-term damage. It's how you get cancer. It's how you die of things like that. So there must have been something about Yamaguchi that was able uh, to help him survive this. Something about his DNA or his DNA repair mechanisms that helped him survive it. So it's kind of a springboard for talking about DNA repair, how DNA works, how it replicates itself, and what must have been unusual or strange about Yamaguchi that allowed him to survive in this way. Well, let's talk about that for a second. How does DNA work? How is it read and, and what sort of information is stored in it? So basically, when your cells are looking at DNA, I talked a little bit before how there are those four letters of mm -hmm. DNA. And so what it does is it looks for groups of three, basically. It might look for A, C, C, or T, G, A, or whatever. Just looking for combinations of three uh, letters at a time. And every time it sees one of those letters, uh, first thing your cell does is it looks at those three and then it turns it into RNA, which is a related chemical, very similar to DNA, but it is a little distinct. And then what your cells do is it takes that RNA, looks at that, again, it looks three letters at a time, and it may it builds what's, excuse me, not builds, it uh, adds what's called an amino acid. So a cell will look for three letters and it'll say, okay, AAC, that means this amino acid. So I'm going to add this amino acid. Then a cell looks in and says, okay, the next three letters are GGA. So it adds a different amino acid. And eventually what it does is it makes a chain of amino acids. And amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. So eventually that information in DNA gets turned into a string of amino acids, which 
makes a protein. And then your cells can do something with that protein because proteins are basically the things that run your cells. They're the enzymes that produce things, that catalyze reactions, that help you build things. Uh, proteins are really the most important part of cells in some way. And it's DNA that provides the instructions for uh, basically making these proteins. One of the things I really love about your book is how you do mix in those stories and, and kind of share the science from those stories. Uh, will you please talk about the voyage of William Barents and what happened when he and his crew ate polar bear liver? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this is a story. I love this story. My dad actually told me this story for the first time a very long time ago, and it always kind of stuck with me in my head. And then when I got to writing this book, I decided to look into it a little more and understand what sort of the uh, the DNA connections were to it. Uh, but Barents was an explorer, polar explorer, and he, among other people, were sort of arrogant about their skills and their abilities. And they would always hear these legends uh, up there about these mythical, crazy creatures that were up there, these snow white bears that were up there. And a lot of people didn't believe that these bears existed, but they went and they found them, obviously, and they ended up in a lot of cases shooting them and eating them because they were unprepared and didn't have any other food. Uh, what they'd also heard, in addition to these legends about whether these bears existed, a lot of the natives there would tell them, you know, don't eat certain parts of the polar bear, especially don't touch the polar bear liver. And they figured this was just sort of a superstition of these native people, and they basically ignored them. Uh, but it turned out the native people actually had a lot of wisdom uh, because the polar bear liver, it turns out to be extraordinarily high, have an extraordinarily high concentration of vitamin A. And vitamin A, uh, you know, it's all, it's good. We need vitamin A. But when you have too much vitamin A in you, unfortunately, your body can't excrete it the way it can other uh, vitamins. So if you have too much of other vitamins, they can dissolve in water and you can basically urinate them out. Your body can expel them through the urine. Vitamin A is different in that it's not as water soluble. So your body has a hard time or getting rid of it. And if you eat too much of it, it kicks off these series of changes. Basically, it interferes with some things going on on the DNA level, or it kind of kicks other things into hyperdrive in your skin cells especially. And what basically happens is your skin will start coming off your body in sheets. It will kill certain skin cells, push them to basically die, and they will start peeling off your body in sheets. So these explorers, these polar explorers, when they would get hungry, they would make a stew or something out of the polar bear liver. Liver, They would start eating the polar bear liver, and their skin would peel off in sheets. So it was just this horrific awful uh, side effect that was going on. And as I mentioned before, um, the, the, the polar explorers basically wouldn't believe these stories. And they just kept doing this over and over, learning this lesson over and over about the dangers of eating polar bear liver. Another thing I found really interesting in your book was how you talk about how Roughly 8% of our DNA is actually virus DNA. Can you explain this for us and share the story of Jack Wright and his cats? Uh, yeah, so... 
that that basically is the the startling fact by itself that eight percent of our DNA is just old virus DNA. So there's a certain class of DNA, or excuse me, a certain class of viruses called retroviruses. Uh, HIV is usually the best known example of this, of a retrovirus. And what these viruses do is is very clever. They end up inserting their genetic information into our DNA. So they take their genetic information, insert it into our DNA, and when they do that, they basically can trick our cells into making more copies of the virus. So it's a very clever strategy that they've developed uh, over the history of their evolution, and they basically end up using it to make more copies of themselves. And they've done this so well and so effectively that a full 8% of our DNA turns out to be these old viruses that have inserted themselves into our DNA. And some of them, or actually most of them, have ended up breaking down over the years. So basically what happened is that there was a mutation that disabled the gene. It doesn't work properly anymore. But our cells, you know, they're just little creatures. They don't have consciousness. They're not like scientists. They don't know that this is old virus DNA. So they just keep copying it over and over and over. It just keeps getting passed down generation after generation. So most of it doesn't do anything. But if you look a little bit closer, there is some DNA, a few stretches, that human beings end up using inside of ourselves that are, in fact, very, very important for us. And probably the best example of this is the human, and not only the human, but the mammalian placentia, in that the placentia as we know it, would be impossible without certain genes that we inherited from viruses. So when viruses want to infect a cell, what they do basically is they lock onto the outside of the cell. They end up kind of fusing their exterior with the exterior of the cell and locking into it and then inserting their genetic information into the cell. Uh, An embryo uh, basically does the same thing. After fertilization, the egg and the sperm, once they fused, they travel down the fallopian tube, they reach the uterus, and what they basically do is they lock onto the lining of the uterus and they fuse with it. And the genes that they use to fuse with it all come from viruses. So without these viruses, without them inserting this genetic information, uh, live birth, the way we know it in mammals simply would not be possible. So viruses in this sense really helped make us who we are. And it's even more incredible because if you look at just the stretches of our DNA that uh, produce proteins, like I was saying before, that ends up only accounting for about 2% of our DNA. So by some measure, we're four times more virus than we are human. And some of those virus genes are some of the most important genes in our repertoire. Hmm. Would you would you touch on that story of Jack Wright and his cats? That's another one I found to be particularly interesting. 
Yeah, so that's a, a pretty incredible story about uh, – it's kind of going the reverse of the uh, story that we just talked about. Mm-hmm. In that situation, uh, viruses were um, inserting DNA into us. In this case, something kind of the opposite happened. So there's a certain uh, microbe called toxoplasmus. Uh, that's usually associated with cats. So if you hear that, you know, pregnant women shouldn't uh, empty cat litter, uh, that thing, uh, the reason why is this parasite called toxo. And toxo is very, very specific in that it can reproduce sexually, but it can only do so when it's in the intestines of a cat. And that's very, very specific, but that's just the way its biology works. It only reproduces in the intestines of a cat. So it's kind of always scheming to get back inside the intestines of a cat. And it and unfortunately, you know, the way a cat's digestive system works, if you're in the intestines of a cat, you get pooped out basically pretty quickly. So it developed this very clever strategy to get back inside. What it does is it works its way into other mammals, usually into mice. And it goes into actually the brain of these mice, and it ends up producing uh, an enzyme that helps make dopamine. Uh, dopamine's a brain chemical, very important chemical vo- involved in our reward system, uh, helping to help us uh, seek out rewards, basically. So what Toxo does is it goes into the brain of these mice, and it ends up kind of rewiring them using this uh, this dopamine enzyme. And what it basically does is it ends up switching uh, their ideas on what's interesting and what they should be afraid of. So if you if you look at mice, they basically are hardwired to be afraid of the smell of cats, especially cat urine. If you've had mice that have never, ever been out of the lab before, never been exposed to it, they still have this hardwired, deep-set fear of any smell of cats. But after they've been infected by toxo, that gets switched around in their brain where it actually makes them attracted to the smell of cats. So they'll actually go seek out the smell of cats. And of course, if they're seeking out the smell of cats, brings them into contact with cats, the cat ends up eating them, swallows the toxoparasites in their brain, gets digested, ends up back in the intestines of cats. So basically, this is a super elaborate way for these parasites to end up back in the intestines of cats by taking over the brains of these mice and changing the way their brains work. It's really kind of spooky in some way. Mm -hmm. And the especially spooky part is that it's not just mice that this works in. Mice can stand in in a lot of lab situations for humans for a reason, and that is that we are very similar to mice in some way, and Toxo ends up working in our brains too. And there's theories out there that, you know, they're not all uh, nailed down, but there is some good evidence out there that people who are sort of stereotypically crazy cat people, uh, 
that one of the reasons that they are interested in cats is they probably have a toxo infection of some sort in their brain, and it's actually making them attracted to cats in some unusual way. So finally, to get back to the story you were talking about, about Mr. Wright, was he was this guy in Ontario, I believe it was, who had the world record, the Guinness world record for the most number of cats. He had something like 700 cats in his little tiny house. And the story in the book talks about just what a ridiculous situation this was, how much time and energy and money they spent taking care of all these cats at once and what it's like to live with that many cats, but then also to look at what might be going on in his brain based on the fact that he has all of these cats. Let's take a step back a bit, and we talked about live birth, but what are some of the other things that make a mammal a mammal? And uh, why did humans break away and kind of evolve? And, and then when and why did they break away from monkeys? Well, a few things make a mammal a mammal. Uh, one is uh, – well, the essentially most mammals have that, and live birth is for most mammals. There are other things I think that are more sort of uh, at the core of being a mammal. Uh, one is they have mammary glands, so they, they provide milk for their young. Uh, another big characteristic is hair. So there are a lot of uh, – and then there's some anatomical things as well. So there's basically three or four characteristics, and most mammals have a placenta but not all of them. But, you know, the most successful mammals do have a placenta, the more widespread ones. Um, and then kind of jumping ahead evolutionarily into what helped us break away from uh, from our primate ancestors, a lot of different things. Um, one is our skin. So we don't have hair covering our skin the way that most other primates do. Our skin also sweats, and that's not something that's very common in the animal kingdom. Um, other things. Anatomically, obviously, we walk on two feet. It's a pretty rare feat for any other animal. But probably the most obvious thing and the thing that I talk about most in the book is our brains. We have brains that function differently than other mammals or other primates especially uh, for a couple of reasons. The most obvious one is that we have much bigger brains. So in the book, I talk about uh, some of the genetic uh, factors that play into uh, giving us this large, uh, very intense, very smart brain that we have and how we can kind of trace this back to different mutations uh, and different uh, variations of genes that we have. And the really cool thing I think about this whole thing is that it's not just you know one mutation that gave us this gigantic brain. It's a lot of different mutations working together. And some of them don't even necessarily have anything to do with with our neurons. Some of them have to do with, you know, digesting red meat or a certain gene that deactivated um, the muscles in our jaw. So it gave us smaller jaw muscles. Our jaws moved forward as a result. It kind of opened up room inside of our brains for our brains to expand into. So kind of these roundabout ways uh, and a lot of little contributions that helped make us who we are. And if any one of them hadn't happened, it's it's possible that we would just be, you know, a bipedal but not very intelligent ape running around. You know, on the subject of, of, of apes, one of the things I found to be extremely fascinating in your book was that even though there are only 
150,000 chimps and roughly the same number of gorillas alive today, humans have significantly less genetic diversity than these two species. Uh, does this suggest that at one point humans were very endangered, almost to the point of extinction? Uh, can you please talk about this for our listeners? Yeah, so that's kind of uh, this bizarre situation in that, as you said, you know, the population of chimps and gorillas is, you know, it's the size of a modest sized city, basically, size of my hometown of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, roughly 150,000 or so people. Human beings, meanwhile, there are 7 billion of us on the planet. And anatomically, uh, human beings vary a lot more than you see in uh, chimpanzees and apes. We have very, very tall humans, very, very short humans. We have huge, big muscular humans and very skinny humans. We, you know, our skin, we have superficial differences, a lot of different colorings and things to our skin. So we really have a lot of variety. But if you look at our genes, we have actually a very narrow uh, genetic variety. And as you suggested, what that basically uh, means is that in our past, our population numbers crashed at some point and got very, very low. Uh, depending on the assumptions you make, it might have gotten down to, you know, a few thousand individuals only. So we basically almost went extinct at various points in our history and easily could have been wiped out had, you know, the environment been a little harsher, had there been a drought one year, had we struggled to find food or water, something like that. So human beings barely pulled through at different points. And it's not something we often want to think about that we maybe almost went extinct. We kind of want to think about our rise to the uh, the top of the world as kind of inevitable, but that's not the case if you look at our genetics. Are there any other factors that could have potentially influenced influence that lack of genetic diversity in humans? Um, yeah, another one is that human beings um, arose in Africa and after that, they started to spread out to different parts of the earth. But it's not like all human beings were spreading out equally over the whole earth. What basically happened was that a small number of pioneers left Africa and started to spread into Europe and Asia. And because there were so few of these pioneers spreading out, uh, whatever random assortment of genes they happen to have were much more overrepresented in the next generation. So basically it's this idea called genetic drift in that because of random chance events and who happened to be a pioneer and who happened to want to spread uh, to Europe and Asia, those genes were much more heavily represented. So that's another basic reason why uh, we have less genetic diversity than other primates. We talked about the human brain a little bit ago. I, can you share with us the story of what happened to Einstein's brain? Uh, yeah, this is uh, one of those uh, kind of incredible stories that uh, you just make you shake your head. You just it, It's hard to believe it even happened. Um, so basically, uh, Al after Albert Einstein died, a doctor in Princeton, New Jersey, decided that he wanted to salvage Einstein's brain and wanted to uh, study it, basically, to see what made Einstein a genius. Uh, unfortunately, Unfortunately, he didn't do a very good job about getting the permission of Einstein's family 
to do this, and they were very, very upset about the whole thing, as you can imagine, kind of understandably, uh, violated uh, the medical ethics even at the time. And eventually he did get the permission to do this, doctor named Thomas Harvey, and set out to study Einstein's brain. But, you know, it, he just kept finding these kind of odd things about it in that, for one thing, Einstein's brain was very small. It's one of the smallest brains he'd ever seen. Uh, roughly two standard deviations below the average size for a human brain, an adult male brain. So Einstein had a very small brain, which was kind of weird. You know, we don't think about Einstein, of all people, having a tiny brain. Uh, eventually, Thomas Harvey chopped these um, chopped Einstein's brain up into very small pieces, and ended up coating them in this kind of shellac, this kind of metal, uh, excuse me, this kind of plastic, and ended up sending them on to neurologists around the world to have them study Einstein's brain to try to figure out what made him a genius. And unfortunately, uh, these neurologists basically didn't find much about Einstein's brain that they thought was interesting or unusual uh, because it's a, basically a sample size of one. So when you're looking at a sample size of one, it's hard to know whether Einstein's brain maybe was unusual because he was a genius or maybe Einstein just had something a little funny about his brain that had nothing to do with his genius. So I, in the book, I kind of use this as a comparison um, to the story about the genetics of the brain and kind of the fact that we've, used, we've looked a lot into uh, the genetics of what makes human beings smart. We've made a lot of progress in that area, whereas we haven't made much progress in trying to figure out what makes individual human beings geniuses. Uh, so it's kind of a, a comparison between those two using this incredible story of basically someone stealing Einstein's brain. How can tiny differences in DNA determine whether uh, aspiring athletes or musicians essentially accomplish their dreams or not? Well, a couple of different things. Um, one is that a tiny, tiny difference of DNA – again, DNA makes proteins. And if you have a little tiny difference in DNA, unfortunately, that can make a big difference in the protein. So proteins basically work uh, – or I should say their function is intimately related to their shape. And if you have a wrong amino acid at a bad point, a vulnerable point in the protein, it can completely change the shape of that protein. If it changes shape, it's probably not going to work as well, and that mutation uh, that caused that change will probably end up being harmful to you. Every once in a while, though, a mutation will actually improve the function of that protein. And so for an athlete, for instance, you might suddenly have a person, a man or a woman, who's much better at um, shuttling oxygen around. So they're much more efficient at using oxygen. Well, if they're much more efficient at using oxygen, then they're going to probably be a better athlete. They could be a very good uh, distance runner or bicyclist or something like that. So that's a case where a very small mutation can end up having a large outside outsized influence 
on uh, the way people work because when you get down to it, even though it's a very small change, it's working on a very basic fundamental level inside the cells. Uh, and another thing is that a lot of geneticists today talk about gene-environment interactions. Those are very, very important to them. And gene-environment interactions can basically exacerbate – it's kind of like a multiplication factor. So there might be genetically a small difference between people, but when you start taking environmental factors into account, those can multiply very quickly and you can kind of uh, exacerbate or exaggerate those initially small differences. You see that with identical twins sometimes. They have identical DNA, but because of environmental things like that, they often end up being fairly different people when they grow up. One of the other stories that I found to be absolutely fascinating from the book, and it's one that, you know, actually one of the historical figures I find to be the most fascinating is the, the infamous ancient Egyptian pharaoh Akhenaten, uh, King Tut's dad. Um, and will you please share the reason why you shared that story in the book and its genetic significance? Yeah, uh, so Akhenaten is kind of a fascinating figure just by himself, uh, not only for his family. Uh, you mentioned King Tut, his son. Uh, Nefertiti was his wife. So two of the most famous people in Egyptian history were involved in his life. And he's also a really fascinating uh, case study by himself. Freud ended up writing a book about him. A lot of theologians have looked at him because he was one of the first monotheists in history. So he's kind of a fascinating personality by himself. Himself. And genetics comes into the story because a long time ago, um, I shouldn't say a long time ago, but uh, you know, a decade or so ago, geneticists started to look at the DNA of Tut and uh, his family to try to figure out not only the relationships among them, but to figure out if Tut, or excuse me, if uh, Akhenaten especially might have had a genetic disorder of some sort. And the evidence for him having a genetic disorder was that if you look at the art during Akhenaten's reign, like the public murals, the public carvings, the public art during his reign, in a lot of these things, these pictures, Akhenaten always looks a little strange. There's something off about him. His limbs look unusual. His body looks unusual. His face looks unusual. And people wondered, you know, could he have a genetic disorder of some sort? Because there was a lot of incest in the pharaonic lines, to be frank, and it, that raises the odds of having a genetic disorder by a lot. And people wanted to know, could he possibly have a genetic disorder? So they ended up doing these genetic tests on him and Tut to try to figure out if there might have been uh, genetic disorders going on that might have compromised the, uh, the family's health and ended up doing the dynasty in. One of the things that I would recommend to everybody is if you aren't familiar with the art during Akhenaten's reign, it's extremely different from ancient Egyptian art both before and after that. So I highly recommend Googling that and, and taking a look at that. What are some of the things being done in the world of genetic science now? And can you speculate a bit on what the future might hold? Uh, let's touch on things like cloning designer babies and genetic profiles as part of one's health record. 
Yeah, so a couple of things kind of popped to mind. Uh, one, you mentioned cloning, being able to basically uh, reproduce the genetics of a, another creature. Uh, in the book, I talk a little bit about epigenetics, which is basically the study of turning genes on and off inside your body. Um, so all of our cells have uh, the same DNA in them, but not all of the genes are working at the same time. And the reason why is that some genes get shut down at some time, certain times, other genes get turned on at certain times. That's something called epigenetics, the study of turning genes on and off. And it turns out that the environment plays a really big role in turning genes on and off. So I mentioned twins a moment ago that they, because of environmental interactions, are often not the same individuals as they grow. And the reason why is because of these epigenetic interactions. And eventually, uh, DNA is going to, and DNA genetic studies are going to be a bigger part of medicine. You already see it nowadays with some cancer treatments where they will say, okay, you have breast cancer, for instance, but what kind of breast cancer do you have? They'll go in, they'll look at the mutations that are causing this breast cancer, this tumor inside you, and they'll say, okay, you have this type of breast cancer, we're going to give you this type of drug because that usually does better with this type of cancer. So we're going to start seeing, I think, um, people not talking about cancer as much as cancers, plural, because we're going to be much more, uh, have a much higher ability to discriminate between different types of cancer. And you're going to start seeing treatments um, sort of tailored to individual people's genes based on what we think they might respond to a little more uh, easily, a little more better. And there are some perils in doing this type of work. Um, people have long worried about insurance companies discriminating against people, for instance, uh, based on their genes because they might have higher susceptibility to diseases. But there's a lot of promise in there, too, that we'll be able to uh, basically come up with more effective treatments because we have finally this genetic information. Well, Sam, I've taken up a lot of your time today. My final question for you is what are you working on now? Yeah, so I mentioned uh, before that I studied physics, and I haven't, though, written a book about physics itself. I've written about, uh, you know, chemistry, genetics, neuroscience, and finally I'm going to get into a physics book. Uh, it's basically going to be an offshoot of the Manhattan Project uh, during World War II, the project to build the first atomic bomb. Uh, so the, the background is that the scientists on, in the U.S. especially were convinced that Nazi Germany was far ahead of us in nuclear technology and that they were going to build an atomic bomb first because Germany had the best industry in the world. They had all these Nobel Prize winners there. Scientists in Germany had discovered nuclear fission first. So we were convinced Germany was way ahead and they were going to build a nuclear bomb and give it to Adolf Hitler. So what the U.S. government decided to do was put together basically this team of scientific commandos, uh, half military, half science, send them into Europe to try to disrupt the Nazi atomic bomb project. 
and they ended up spying on them in different ways. Uh, they ended up sending assassins in at various points. They were sending sabotage teams in to blow up different uh, plants and things. And basically it was this scientific commando team uh, running through Europe to try to stop the Nazi atomic bomb. So the book basically is about – that uh, group of commando scientists, what they did, and why they were so convinced that Germany was going to have a nuclear bomb. That sounds really, really cool. Yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun to write, too, because it's been a bit of a departure for me in that this book is kind of more one unified story. Uh, there are a lot of different characters in there. There's like, you know, an ex-Major League Baseball player turned spy. Um, one of the Kennedy brothers, uh, Joseph Kennedy, the one who ended up dying during World War II, he was peripherally involved and actually died in one of the projects that they were working on to try to stop the Nazi attack. Bomb. So it's been really fun to kind of focus in depth on a few characters and really uh, make a deep dive basically into one story. So I've had a lot of fun doing the project. Do you know when it might be published? It's probably going to be July 2019. So a little more than a year from now. Okay. Something like that. Perfect. Perfect. You'll have to let me know when it's done. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to remind everyone, too, who enjoyed this episode to check out my interview with Sam about his book, The Tale of the Dueling Neurosurgeons. Sam, I want to thank you again today for being on the show. I really enjoyed it, and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Take care. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me.